Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now joining us, I'm going to just say this flat out, the auto interview of our Davos, and that is because I'm sure I can speak for those in early morning America, Volkswagen is not the Volkswagen that we know. Far more than that, it is the auto company of the world, pathbreaking in so many things, including this regulatory mess and that regulatory mess, called in to straighten it out. Herbert Deese, Volkswagen chief executive officer and a mechanical engineer from Munich joins us uh, this morning. I am driving around the World Economic Forum in these gorgeous VW eight-chair vans and buses. On tariffs to the United States, the United States wants to keep your product, your vans, your trucks out of America. How are we going to get the advantage of what I'm driving around in Davos in, get more of those trucks into America? No, you all you have all those advantages. We are exporting. We don't export those trucks because the market was uh, small. But the next generation electric, uh, we call it bus, ID bus. It, it uh, goes back to the microbus, uh, which was very successful yes. in the 60s or so. We will bring that product uh, coming 2022, 23. Uh, and then you will have uh, a much nicer car than, than the cars you What do you need yeah. from the United States on tariff relief to get some of your products more into the United States? We're still optimistic. Today we have, we have very, uh, uh, very low tariffs for, for import to the United States. Uh, we have a manufacturing base in the United States. And we are increasing that manufacturing case, and we are doing everything to avoid tariffs for importing our cars to the U.S. You and I think we're making progress. We just announced a $800 million investment in our Chattanooga factory. Uh-huh. We yes. received a positive tweet from the president, so we think we are on the right way. Yeah, and you're one of the very few European chief executives that has actually met with President Trump face-to-face. Do you think we'll see more political friction between countries in 2019 or less? You know, I, I don't hope, uh, you know, and I'm still optimistic because there is always uh, a lot to lose on both sides. And I think the president is well aware. On the other hand, I, I understand his case. You know, and my background is manufacturing and the uh, United States probably 40, 50 years ago was really a, a, a strong manufacturing base of the world with machine tool industries. And a lot of, of, of this industry uh, came down and, and, and lost ground. So I understand this case. And building up manufacturing again is probably a, a valuable project for every society. So I understand the case, but it, it takes time. And, but we want to contribute. We see the U.S. as a big market chance. We have a small yep. market share with our brand still. We want to grow. We think we can provide the right product for the customer. We have a nice heritage in the in the United States. Most of the of our potential customers sure know Tom us. No, many come. many have driven, yeah. have I'm learned sure. driving on a Volkswagen. So, Mr. D- He'll talk, he'll talk to you about the heritage in a second, but I want to ask you about China. This is a huge, huge market for you. Yeah. And we saw demand in general for cars under pressure also because of the U.S.-China trade tensions. Yeah. How do you see China performing this year? No, China is uh, for sure is under threat as a market. We, we play a very important role there. We have 18% market share with all our brands. We, are, we, we came early to China, so we are perceived kind in the country like a, like a Chinese uh, company. 
uh, growth. Uh, we had 27 years of continuous growth in China. Uh, it's also a big source of income for us. We're financing a lot of, of uh, investment in future technologies out of China. So it's really important. Last year already, second half of last year was already declining, which is hurting us. Uh, we could cope because we come with a lot of new products, so we could increase our market share. We had a slight growth still. Uh, but this year will be challenging, and I really hope uh, and, and trust in the governments that they come mm. to arrangements. Yeah, because it's it's a lot, you know, uh, uh, economics is a lot about mood of the people and and fear, right. and and uh, and the right words and the and the few agreements right. would would help a lot. The romance for me is I grew up on a VW Beetle, just like in the classic Mad Men episode, which is the first car I learned to drive on. You move technologically from an engineering standpoint a little bit forward, and you have what many in America feel is the Elon Musk killer. You've got a Porsche automobile. I haven't seen one driving around here. Is there, is there a, a Tayan, is it? It's coming. Is it's yeah. coming. It's not yeah. up here yet. No. It'll be here next year yeah. in the Valley. How are you in electric vehicles going to kill Elon Musk and be a Tesla killer? Yeah. Uh, we really appreciate what, what Elon Musk has been achieving and doing and pushing the industry and really promoting electric cars. I take him very seriously. You know, it's it's a uh, it's good team, a very aggressive team. Uh, uh, but we think when it really comes to scaling uh, to, exactly. to produce all over the world, we have a chance to compete. There's maybe five people like you, I've even put Mary Barr in this category, that really understand the importance and complexity of manufacturing processes. When you look at Tesla in a tent, how does a pro manufacturer like you respond? Can you get the kind of quality control you need manufacturing in a tent? You know, I think this is probably our advantage, that we are used to scale up plants in every other region of the world. We are strong in Latin America, strong in China. Uh, we can do that. Uh, this is our advantage. That makes us a little bit slower, but when we decide, when we come, we come strongly. Yes. But Mr. Dees, when you look at valuations, the traditional car manufacturers are, are maybe not seen as the ones that will really deliver the electric cars of the future. So do you think the number of traditional car manufacturers need to shrink? I think all in all, our let's say our industry will change a lot in the next uh, 10 to 20 years. And yes, it will become much more of a, let's say, uh, it will become uh, more of an internet logic. You know, where you have, let's say, where, you have, where economies of scale are nearly everything because it's all about software, computers. So economies of scale will play a major role, but that is that is also an advantage for us you know, because we are already big. If we can converge fast into that new age of cars, we have a good chance to outperform the startups right. because they are, the startups right. also have to grow a lot. No? They have to invest a lot. They have to scale up. And uh, that's why I see that probably the startups and, and, and tech companies are a bit over-evaluated yeah. and we're probably a bit under-evaluated when it comes to future mobility. But Mr. Dees, does it mean, I mean, how many car makers are there now? 30 in the world? Are we going to be left yeah, with five major more, ones in more. 20 years? My assumption would be that there would be a consolidation process because we become more of a, let's say, tech uh, industry, you know, where, where economies of scale are even more important than today. In the smartphone world, you have probably four or five manufacturers. No? Uh, will there be more on the car side? Yes, but uh, as many as today, probably not. Uh, the French finance minister told us this morning, a Bloomberg exclusive, we had it first, that Carlos Ghosn resigned last night. How does that change? 
the automakers? Uh, you know, I, I highly regard uh, Carlos. I just bought a car from him, uh, and and he really was uh, a pillar of the industry and shaped the industry also worldwide, not only the, the European industry. So for sure he's a loss, but uh, there are many talented uh, managers uh, which, which well, will probably step in. Yeah. To speak of the sensitivities that Mr. Gohn is going under right now, the business plan here is the JV, the relationship that we have between the French and the Japanese. What have you learned from this fractured relationship? And how does it redound over to Volkswagen's acquisitions, combinations, and joint ventures with future companies? I think scale will be even more important in the future than it is today, though, do you, that you have to partner with, uh, and you, you, you not only have to partner with, with uh, competitors, you also you have to partner with tech companies, and managing such kind of network is uh, one of the key skills we need in the industry. Are, are we going to see many more of these alliances? I think so, yeah. Between what is it, truck maker? I mean, is it? Do you have to basically, you know, are alliances of two groups that actually, you know, complement each other, or that where you really have synergies? Mm -hmm. Let me just uh, uh, mention what we just agreed with Ford. No, we right. we, we partner in uh, the light commercial vehicle segment. Now, both companies are relatively big. Now, we are we have enough economies of scale in many segments, but in this small segment of uh, commercial light commercial vehicles we 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 we're not having the enough economies of scale each so combining we will be very competitive and this uh, you know this is uh, this is industry how it works worldwide a global industry so partnering makes sense where do you see that going i mean if you look at the partnership with ford what exactly is the end game yeah you know we are we are uh, together with Ford in that area to compete against other partnerships. Uh, this is an open game. Uh, important is that you have, um, let's say, a business relation, which is a trustful one, that you have a good uh, track record. Uh, the advantage with Ford is that we, we already worked with Ford some two, three decades ago right. in Europe uh, uh, together and in Latin America, out to Latina. So we have a good track record and uh, it just made sense for us, for both companies. In America, when you grew up as a kid, you were a Ford family or a Chevy family. There was no other debate <laughs> about it. Mari Bars, Mari Bars is Trust me, the edgy families had a VW Beetle with no heat in it for the first 50 miles. The romance of the moment, and trust me, folks, we didn't have one, was the Carmen Ghia. It was the definitive design idea now. Now, we're mm -hmm. getting back to design now. Your Porsche product, I'm going to do a shout-out to Bentley. It's wonderful to drive down Fifth Avenue in my Bentley. Really? Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> I really but, believe that. But, but design is coming back. What are you going to do to develop a Volkswagen ethos, aesthetic, worldwide, mm -hmm. in design, as you had with Carmen Ghia years ago? Yeah, I think we, we Volkswagen remained with an iconic design. Now, we had that step change between the area of, of uh, the, the, the times of Beetle and Microbus, and then to the Golf. Golf is, is worldwide our most relevant product, but all the design language, all the technic, technical package was driven by the Golf. And now comes another step change. What's the electric step change? Cars. A step change means that the entire design of the car is, is disrupted. Now, from a Beetle to a Golf, there is a disruption. You can see that's not evolutionary anymore. And the next uh, disruption will come now 
next year, end of next year, with the idea to be launched, it will be similar to the disruption from golf, uh, from Beetle to golf. Now it's from golf to ID. Okay, I'm going to take it over to Leica, which is a small but highest quality brand of Germany. I mean, you look at a Leica camera, and the idea is there's an e evolving aesthetic of Leica yeah. through the years. They've got the new fancy one, which is all stripped down in that. Do you need to do that out of Germany? Do you need to run your global platform with a German aesthetic? You know, we have, uh, meanwhile, uh, and, and we are a, a global company, meanwhile, we're very strong in China, very strong in Latin America, a bit weaker in the U.S. still, uh, but we have uh, design offices all over the world because we have to make customer happy uh, on a worldwide basis, but still it needs the ingredients of Volkswagen design, which has to be a bit clean, a bit timeless, no, a bit classless, democratic, and we're trying to achieve the same in the next generation of cars. When are we going to fix Davos traffic? When's the first driverless car coming to Davos? Yeah, I'm a bit conservative on, on this. No, I've, I'm driving around with lots of prototypes worldwide. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of investment going in there. But really to see the cars then performing on the road, not, not just being kind of a, a hurdle yeah, and, and standing around, it will take time. You are... Correct in that. I'm editorializing here with the Volkswagen CEO. <laughs> I can't wait these. for driving cars. You, That's you, another story. I'm in the Volkswagen camp. It will <laughs> take time, particularly last night at 2 a.m. outside the piano bar. Joining us is Jason Bordoff of Columbia University, out of Brown University, long ago and far away. The cool people carried Daniel Jurgen's a prize around campus, and as I've told Dr. Jurgen, but three people read it at Brown University at that time. The only one that read it cover to cover I mean, think about was Jason. How big that book is! It is, you know. I've read it a few times cover to cover. <laughs> well, you read it cover to cover, and you move on from Jurgen's The Prize to The Quest, and then you move on to the now what for big oil and for national and international energy policy. You've got to write The Prize, The Quest, Volume Three. Where are we right now as we look forward to the prize? Well, that's the conversation here uh, in Davos. I think, you know, extreme weather, climate change, top the list of concerns. There's a lot of discussion among corporate leaders and a broad recognition of realism in a sense that maybe is a little bit new this year about just how far away we are, despite the tremendous right. progress in renewable energy, tremendous growth in electric vehicles, how far away we are from taking global goals like the Paris Agreement two degree target seriously, how far away we are from achieving Is that. Exxon here? Uh, I, I'm sure oh, they are. I'm using seen, that as a general I mean, statement. Many of the big, big oil, oil here. Yeah, of course. Big well, the big here. oils here. But yeah. what is their future, given all that we see? Are they like, yeah, climate change, go over, do it, forget about it, or are they really listening to corporate leaders and government officials? There's a lot of variance within the oil and gas uh, industry, but I think at the same time that there's a broad recognition we need to move much faster toward a clean energy transition. There's also a realistic recognition that we are going to be using oil and gas for a long time. People are paying close attention today to what's happening in oil markets, whether it's geopolitical risks like Venezuela or a possible trade war with China that could slow down growth and put, put pressure on prices. So companies are thinking about what it looks like to transition over time. And they're also investing uh, in, in things like the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, which is meeting here, trying to do things like lower the methane uh, emissions profile of oil and gas to try, to try to start moving it more in the right direction. Jason, let me know what you think of this argument. A, a number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, you could make an argument that America needs to shift away from fossil fuels because we were so... <coughs> on fossil fuels from abroad. 
10 years later, America becomes the biggest oil producer. Does it get harder to make the argument that you need to move away from something that you are the leader in producing? I think it's harder to build consensus toward that now. And so a good example of this is the fuel economy standards. When I was in the Obama White House, right. we doubled fuel economy standards. The Trump administration wants to roll that back. If you read their rationale for why they're doing it, it's because in a world where we import almost no oil, uh, there's less national security reason to reduce domestic oil consumption. Now, there's still a huge reason to do it in terms of protecting consumers, in terms of climate change and the environment, but we used to have the ability to build mm -hmm. consensus across the aisle more that it was both for national security reasons and for climate reasons that we needed to do this. That breaks down a little bit in a world where the U.S. is almost energy independent. When you were at Brown, did you have to take biology and then on to chemistry and all that, or did you avoid that pain? <laughs> I, I took a pretty diverse set of courses, but Brown doesn't require... Uh, oh, what a <laughs> shock Brown here. You do so you ran into <laughs> you ran into the scientists at one point and you said, these guys are really smart. How does Davos and how does America deal with the president and a good part of America, which has an A-science outlook? They really don't want to look at the theoretical and applied constructs of modern climate science, do they? I think there's uh, certainly a piece of this administration and a segment of American society, and not just American, other countries as well, that has uh, a challenge accepting what's, main, what's broad scientific consensus. Do you consider that a permanence, or will that change? I think it's going to change, and I think you see that already across the aisle in data with the next generation. Yale just came out with a study showing rising public opinion, recognition that climate change is real, it's caused by human activity, and, and that we need to do something yeah, John, about it. John, I bring this up because we're going to do that radio remote next week from the western, sh southwestern shore of Greenland. Uh, it ain't there that. anymore. Is, is, is that the ice that broke mean? up. We'd be on an iceberg. Wait, they'd like us on an iceberg. Would they? Is that what they, they would want? like I us on? Anthony from New Jersey wants would, us on an iceberg like that as off well. of Greenland. I mean, we're already seeing impacts of climate change. And when you look out 10, 20 years, the current status quo, the impacts of climate change are going to be uh, pretty unpleasant people to deal with. And I don't think a broad public is going to accept that. There will be a tipping point at some point where people turn around and say, we just can't keep functioning in this way. I'm going to try and make this as simple as I possibly can. Do you think there are members of the public and areas of the public that still need some form of educating to draw a distinction between weather and climate? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, well, it's really cold here, and, uh, and, and, and we have cold spells all the time, but, but the, the, the climate is a system. And so what's important is the way that system is changing. Average temperatures are rising. We've had four out of the five uh, hottest years uh, on, on record in the last five, few, few years. So people need to understand that. This is important. There's a new liberal definition coming up in the next uh, election. There are progressive. There's 47 presidential candidates. You worked within the Democratic Party theology of Barack Obama. Where is the liberal aesthetic, the liberal ethos moving on climate change and environment? Is it shifting or are we going to see the same debate in 2020? There's a huge amount of momentum uh, on, on the left and, and many uh, people in the Democratic Party that came in with the Democratic takeover of the House to push for stronger action on climate change, and that's great. There is not full agreement on what that looks like and how you implement it and whether we can achieve that with 100 percent renewable energy or whether we need a broader set of solutions, advanced nuclear power, putting a price uh, on carbon, and a recognition that there is going to be a role for oil well, and gas in the economy for decades to come. Jason, thank you so much. With Columbia University, visit us in our New York studios. It's far away from Anytime. It's much nicer. It's much more comfortable.
I have been remiss on this. It's really been something, one of my weaknesses here at Bloomberg Surveillance is to look at the machine of Europe and always that devolves down to the Spanish economy. There's a vibrancy there, a difference there within all of their domestic cultures as you see across all of Europe. Nadia Calvino is Spanish economy minister and she joins us today. The stereotypes of Spain in America, and for that, and so much of the Western world, are so much unfounded. Give us an update on the cultural solidity of Spain right now. We see this riot, that riot, Barcelona, this, I don't even know half the places. Give us an update on the cultural solidity of Spain. Yeah, well, thank you very much. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here in Bloomberg. I don't know if the uh, prejudice is there or whether the, the opinions are unfounded. Mm -hmm. What I can tell you is that the Spanish economy, after a very deep and long crisis has been bouncing back, growing quite significantly in the last years. There is a quite stable society, right. very strong social fabric and, and political stability too. So I'm, I'm going to get you in hot water at, okay. at, at home. What's the distinction between Spain and Italy in okay. recovery of this crisis? Well, I mean, the growth rate is not comparable. We've been having yeah. very high growth rate. We reached the mm. maximum above 3% in 2015. Our expectation for 2019 is 2.2%. So we will be growing more than the rest of the large European economies, significantly more than the EU average. Well, there's no comparison. I mean, from the uh, fiscal policy uh, dimension also, mm -hmm. we're, we're really committed to fiscal consolidation, reducing the deficit, reducing the debt. Social stability is quite remarkable also, very open, liberal economy, trying to, and society, I would say, welcoming, uh, you know, we really encourage foreign investment. I yeah. think that there are a number of areas where, you know, I wouldn't be, like to be compared to anybody, of mm. course. A, a little bit earlier this morning yeah. in Davos, Switzerland, the Dutch Prime Minister made some waves. He thinks that the Italians have been let off lightly for their approach towards That's their That's the way venture. it is every day on Bloomberg surveillance. Do you think the Italians are being let off lightly by the EU? I'm a bit surprised that the Prime Minister would say that, frankly, because last Monday we had the Eurogroup meeting with the finance ministers yeah. and the Dutch finance minister actually asked the European Commission what their assessment was of the Italian situation. The commissioner explained it and there was no further question. So I'm a bit surprised that there's this assessment of the situation. No? I think other people are surprised as well. Also, some people, though, do think the Italians might be right. Maybe we do need a bit of fiscal stimulus onto the continent. You have done a lot of hard work in Spain, mm -hmm. a lot of fiscal consolidation, mm -hmm. a lot of structural reforms, and you're reaping the rewards of that. What's your message to the Italian government as they look over the next couple of years, potentially, to loosen the strings a bit, mm. fiscally speaking. I think that the way forward, and this is what our government is pushing for, is striking the right balance between fiscal discipline and social policy. I think that we don't have to wait until the streets are really full of people complaining to act, to try to address the imbalances and the inequalities in society. Well, let's talk about the imbalances, Minister. Mm. You still have a high unemployment rate yes. in, in Spain. What can you do about it? You've had the growth. It doesn't seem to have taken a big bite out of it. Mm. Well, no. I mean, we, we've moved down from 26%, which was outrageously high yeah. during the crisis, to around, we hope to close the year around 14%. So no, that's a very significant mm -hmm. reduction. It's still unacceptably high. Well, 14% we to, to a lot of this audience, that will sound very high. high. Yeah, well, you know, we have a structural unemployment situation in Spain and a very high cyclical variations. We want to address that. We want to actually, in the coming weeks, announce a number of structural reforms in order to try to address the duality that we see in the labour market in Spain. This Give us the colour of those. That's important. Ah, uh, well, I have to, you know, keep the secret <laughs> until we announce the reforms, frankly. Next. How confident, <laughs> how confident are you that your government can get a budget through? 
anytime soon. Sorry? How confident are you that your government can get a budget through? I am quite soon? confident because what we are trying to do with this budget mm -hmm. proposal, which we put forward a couple of weeks ago, is precisely this balance I was referring to. We want to be very ambitious on reducing the public deficit and public debt, very ambitious, mm -hmm. but at the same time try to focus on some policies which have been neglected in the last years and which are important for social cohesion. Eh? In the time that we've got left with you, Minister, I want you to talk to our radio and television audience in America and across all of Europe. I want you to be Iberia Airlines right now. The Prado in Madrid is one of the great jewels of the world. I don't think it's talked about enough. Mm. What do you need to do to move tourism forward to get more people in Madrid, more people in Spain? Well, last year we had 82 million persons coming to Spain. Actually, we are the record in Europe in terms of uh, welcoming tourists. What we are trying to do is move to a more quality Tourism. So How are you going to do that? To, well, we are trying to uh, go beyond the sun and, and beach kind of tourism. Exactly, to the Prado in Madrid. The Prado. I'm very How are you going to get people into Madrid to one of the great jewels of the Western world? Yeah. Well, I would say come to Spain, come to Madrid, because not only the city is very attractive and the Prado is outstanding jewel, but there are many very interesting sites and cities around that you can you know, very you easily this? visit. This, I, I don't, an give invite the, I don't care about Draghi. I just Spain. want to go to the Prado and get a private tour. So, do you need Arne Sorensen and Marriott? Sir, uh, Sir uh, Rocco of Forte Hotels, do you need better hotels in Madrid and in yeah. those areas away from the well, sun and the beach? What we've seen last uh, year actually is that there's been a move from the beach and sun kind of tourism going to the center of Spain and trying yeah. to visit these old cities, you know, traditional cities. In April and in May with team surveillance? Yes, I would. Think, John, <laughs> I think it works. The Prado, I would welcome you. Before the minister knows yes. it, she's going to have paid for an all-expensive trip That's to good. Spain. No, but I will Nadia. buy you a lunch, that's for sure. Nadia Calvino, we wouldn't be able to accept. We would have to pay the Spanish course, economy minister. Of course, It is of great course. to catch up with you. Thank you very much. Right now, an important guest for us at Bloomberg. He is Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte. But far more than that, he's one of the few politicians, not only here at Davos, but worldwide, who has actual business experience years ago at Unilever as well. Prime Minister, wonderful to have you with Good us to today. So program. much to talk about. I know John wants to go from the distance from, uh, say, Amsterdam on down to Rome. We'll cover that here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. in, see, he knows what's coming now. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I know you know what's coming, but. Totally unexpected. The, I, uh, the, there is a there's a distance from Amsterdam to Rome. I want to go the distance right now from your Netherlands to Brexit. Mm -hmm. there, you know, you, I think of the TV show Wolf Hall. Henry VIII, Tudor England, Antwerp and the Netherlands was the nexus of capitalism right now. Is capitalism in London at risk because of this arch United Kingdom debate? I, I don't believe so, but it, it, it is not good. I mean, uh, uh, Brexit is not good for Europe. It is not good for the United Kingdom. It will be a smaller, smaller economy. Um, it will have uh, less of an impact on the world stage after Brexit. Uh, so I'm very, I'm very negative about it. But we this don't is know what Brexit looks like yet, though, Prime Minister. To make an assessment. <laughs> it it means it, it will look like they leave the European Union. Uh, and of course, then now the question is on. on on which terms, and will it be a, a negotiated um, a leaving, or will it be a no-deal Brexit? But in any case, it seems like they will leave, and that is not good news for the UK. So the City of London, I'm just wondering from the European perspective, is there an acknowledgement that the City of London needs to flourish to provide the type of financing that the rest of Europe needs? 
Do you well, need the city of London? Does the EU need the city need of London? We need strong financial centres like Hong Kong, New York, London. But we have others like Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Paris. Can Amsterdam really step up? Yes, we are doing that. Frankfurt is stepping up. Uh, Paris is stepping up. We see other financial centres in Europe. Uh, yeah, this is, of course, reaping some benefits from this very negative yeah. situation of, of a Brexit. Uh, we see many companies from the UK, particularly with a Japanese or Indian background, an American background, right. coming to the Netherlands. You have to uh, set, up, set up shop now in Amsterdam. The Financial Times in editorial today had a lovely subhead about capitalism not being debated here in Davos. Describe for us the new capitalism of the Netherlands. There are so many stereotypes of a Netherlands evolving from World War uh, II. They can be anything from Audrey Hepburn in 1947 <laughs> and on to that experiment of the 60s and the 70s. What's the new capitalism of the new Netherlands? Well, I, I believe it is not new. I, I, I don't see a new Netherlands, but we have always agreed, I think, that uh, people starting a business, earning their own money, hiring people, that that is the best way to uh, have a strong working democracy yeah. with a strong economy. And that economy has to deliver for the people. And that means for me as a politician that I have basically two tasks. I have to make sure that the economy is doing well, that we have enough jobs, and I have to make sure that there is enough safety, security in the country. You've made some waves in the last couple of hours in Davos, Switzerland, but I think you know you have. Um, the comments about the Italians being let off the hook yeah. uh, by the Europeans. I'm very angry Just about build, it. build on that a little bit more. What are you angry about? <laughs> well, Europe is facing some huge challenges. We can make progress on climate change. We can make progress on the internal market, like digital and services. Uh, we can make progress on many issues. But there are two big problems. One is the east-west divide, which has to do with migration. Yeah. And the other is the north-south divide. And there is, at this moment, a lack of trust in Europe between the north and the south. And the European Commission had the task to force Italy to to do more, to bring its state finances in order. Because there is a basic deal in the Eurozone that all of us have to make sure our own house is cleaned up, is working well, and then collectively we can make sure we become more competitive. But the Commission has not done so, so they have not fulfilled on their task, which is to uphold the treaty. Some people watching this programme and listening to this programme on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio might say, well, why is it OK for the French to lift their budget deficit and not for the Italians. It's not okay for the French, but at this moment we have to assess what the Macron proposals in December, his speech to the nation, what that will mean in terms of their macroeconomic numbers. We have not seen that, whether that will mean that they will deviate or not from what they have promised to the European Commission and to our colleagues, their colleagues in the European Union. With Italy, we know what the situation is. And given that situation, it's a debt to GDP of over 130%, uh, again, a budget uh, deficit of more than 2%. It's not good. And we in the Netherlands have put in place changes, reforms, uh, uh, fiscal contraction. We are now growing at a fast pace, twice the pace of our competing economies, because we made those reforms. Italy has to well, do the same. We, on, no we on Bloomberg Surveillance have tried to advocate this debate, this conversation for years. Joachim Fels, Morgan Stanley, now at PIMCO, Professor Martin Feldstein at Harvard and others have really tried to study the core of Europe and as you say, the troubles, the challenges in the South. Are we going to revisit that in the next one, two, and five years? The idea of a core of Europe choosing to separate from the South? I don't think so. Uh, we have the Eurozone. It's, it's, it's working. Uh, if the Netherlands would still have had the Gilder, the Dutch Gilder, uh, when the banking crisis erupted in 2008, 
we would have run the risk that the speculators would have killed us, given the size of our banking sector compared to the size of our own currency. So we have been very fortunate to have the euro. It has brought us many positives. Yeah. Um, but the basic promise of the euro is that collectively we will aim for a higher level of convergence to competitiveness, whilst making sure that we deal with our own problems at home. You cannot export those problems to the collective. The eurozone has been very fortunate as well to have President Mario Draghi over the ECB. The eurozone will not have him at the end of this year. Have you endorsed a nation yet that could head the European Central Bank? Have you got any idea of who and what country you would like to see at the top of the ECB? I have some ideas, but of course, these types of decisions have to be taken a little bit behind the scenes. I cannot comment well, on that. Well, let's get into some of the ideas, because <laughs> some people are worried that if it is someone from, say, Germany, uh, that the decisions made won't be for the continent on aggregate. The decisions will be made, as Tom points out, with that north-south divide in mind, that we will have stricter, tighter monetary policy. Well, I don't mind the passport of the new ECB president. What we need, again, is a president who understands that he or she is there for the collective, is there not to fill the gaps which the politicians mm -hmm. have left. Mario Draghi was forced in 2012 to fill some of those gaps when he said, I will never let the euro down uh, and I will do whatever it takes. Hey, remember, that was around the London uh, Olympics in 2012. Yeah. And he has done a marvelous job over the last seven years, six and a half years. Uh, and I would hope for his successor that the politicians, me, my colleagues, we will do what we need to do and don't leave it to the ECB president. When do you think we get a decision on all of this? Uh, it has to be somewhere this year, uh, but I well, don't know exactly the exact timing. Prime Minister Mark Rutter, great to catch up with you. Joining Good us to see you. Of the Netherlands here in Dallas. 1,022 miles from Amsterdam to Rome. Joining us right now, an important voice for Europe, an important voice for the transatlantic politics, going back to the Atlantic Charter of ages ago, the debris out of World War II, and the development of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. That leads us to the Norwegian Jens Stoltenberg, and among other things I should say, absolutely remarkable that seven or eight years ago, you wandered to the South Pole <laughs> in yes, honor of your Amazon. What was it like going to the South Pole, well, you know, not by helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I didn't go on skis to the South Pole. We went in by a plane, but we were there to, to, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of uh, the yeah. first man reaching the South Pole, and that was actually Norwegian. And then, and then that time, yeah. it was uh, a Norwegian prime minister, so we had a big event there to, to mark that uh, expedition. Right. The big event for NATO is its survival. You have a challenge in President Trump, you have a challenge, and now you regroup and move forward. Give us the NATO philosophy for 2019 and to the future. So NATO philosophy is that as long as uh, Europe and North America stands together, then we are strong. Then we are 50% of the world's economic might and 50% of the world's military might. Uh, so therefore, my main task is to make sure that we stand together. Despite some differences on issues like trade or climate change, uh, yeah. NATO has proven extremely uh, capable of uniting around the core task uh, to defend each other. And the good thing now is that European allies are stepping up when it comes to defence spending. Uh, since uh, President uh, Trump came into office in 2016... Well, let's talk about that, because the President's instinct there is correct. The various governments of NATO have not made their contributions in the way they promised to. Did you agree with him when he first started making those concerns and vocalising them a whole lot more louder over the last year or so? 
So I agree with him, but even more importantly, all allies agree with him that we need fairer burden sharing in the alliance. And uh, that's exactly why NATO allies in Europe and Canada now are investing more in defence. Since 2016, they have added uh, in total 41 billion more for defence spending. And next year, by the end of 2020, they will have added 100 billion more for defence. This is a significant change. It, it helps to improve burden sharing. Yeah. Uh, so we still have a, a long way to go, but we have really turned a corner and European allies are investing more. Getting those contributions up is really important. Where the money goes is also equally as important. Where does that spend need to be made? Uh, on modernizing our capabilities, investing in, uh, in modern planes, uh, battle tanks, uh, uh, military infrastructure, but also uh, training uh, and, uh, and, 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 and allies working more closer together. And also on operations, for instance, fighting terrorism. Right. A couple of weeks ago, John Mearsheimer of Chicago gave a speech at the London School of Economics. His notoriety is that NATO and the Western world, and particularly the United States, overreached and their enthusiasm to move towards Russia, to move toward the former Russian states, to expand NATO. Give us an update on your desire to keep NATO status or to expand NATO towards Russia, as Mr. Putin fears. But first of all, this whole idea that NATO in a kind of aggressive way have moved east is wrong. What we speak about is that new countries who got their independence after the end of the Cold War chose. They wanted two democratic decisions to join an alliance, and it is for every independent sovereign nation to choose their own path. Uh, they wanted to join NATO, and we welcomed them. You know, the idea that it's, it's a provocation uh, to Russia if a neighbor joins NATO, that's a very dangerous idea. Does Mr. Putin feel that, though? Does he feel it's a provocation? Uh, so, but sometimes they speak as uh, uh, if uh, uh, Estonia or Latvia uh, joining NATO is a threat to them. No, it's a, a sovereign, democratic decision by an independent nation to choose its own path. Norway, the country I come from, uh, is a neighbor of Russia. Uh, and if anyone had told us back in 1949 when but we I, joined that that was a provocation. I would suggest you out of the south, far away from the tradition of the Baltic Sea, this is a little more of a heated debate. I, I love the geography with you, Tom. No, but, I mean, but, 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 but NATO is an organization for Europe uh, and, and US and Canada, so we're not going to Africa or, or, or Is Asia. Turkey part of Europe right now? I mean, Sorry? look at the tumult in Turkey in the last 24 months. How do we get Turkey back into the European sphere and dialogue? So Turkey is a very important dialogue. When we see all the progress we have made in the fight against Daesh, ISIL, they controlled a territory as big as UK, 8 million people, they were threatening Baghdad and Damascus. Yeah. We have been able to uh, uh, take away that territory from them, not least because uh, Turkey as a NATO ally has contributed to that fight against Daesh. Talk to me about the landmark INF nuclear treaty <coughs> and the risk the United States leaves it and walks away. The challenge now, the threat now, is that uh, Russia is violating the treaty. This INF treaty banned the whole category of weapons. All intermediate range weapons are banned. Uh, uh, Russia has, over the last years, developed and deployed new intermediate range missiles. These are mobile, these are hard to detect, they have uh, short warning times, meaning that they, they decrease the level of any potential use of nuclear weapons in the conflict. So they are extremely dangerous. 
Therefore, uh, we call on Russia to come back into compliance with this treaty. We will meet Russia tomorrow in the NATO-Russia Council in Brussels, and we will continue to call on them to come back into compliance. Mr. Trump has chosen not to attend this year. If you were to run into Mr. Trump in the hallway of this Congress Center, what would be your message to the president and to his allies in the United States that want to reach back from NATO and reach back from our post-World War II alliances? Also my, my, my message to him will be uh, twofolded. One, European allies are stepping up, 100 billion more uh, from 2016 to 2020. Second, a strong NATO is also good for the United States. To have friends and allies is good for them. Uh, uh, Russia, China, don't, they don't have well, 28 allies and friends. And the only time we invoked Article 5 okay. was after an attack on the United States 9-11. Let's go granular as we can do. A good friend of Bloomberg Surveillance is Admiral Stravitas with Tufts University, now the Carlisle Group. And with him, it always turns to submarines. How many different nations have submarines underwater right now in the Baltic Sea? Are they going to all bump into each other? There's so much military activity there. Uh, there are several nations with submarines in many places. Uh, 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 I will not give you precise figures because that's about okay, intelligence. Okay, well, keep it down to 10. No, is it 10 submarines? But there, is are, it but there, are, there are several and many nations. So the challenge is that with more military presence under the water, on the surface, on land, in air, there is a risk for incidents, accidents. Uh, uh, yes, uh, yeah. precisely. And that's one of the reasons why we in NATO strongly believe also in dialogue with Russia, because we need to have military lines of communications. We need to have uh, uh, mechanisms to reduce risks, to agree how to operate, right. to prevent those incidents and accidents from happening. And if they happen, uh, right. prevent them from spiraling out of control. And John, that sounds like a Syrian discussion to take it down south, where you're worried about military communications. So let's talk well. about that. What you see happening next in Syria, now the United States has declared they want to pull out. I think the important thing now is that we all focus on uh, uh, ISIS and uh, NATO is part of their global coalition to defeat ISIS. We have yeah. made enormous progress from they control the big territory. Now they hardly control any territory at all. Uh, we strongly believe in training local forces. So we are in uh, Iraq training the Iraqi forces, enabling them to stabilize their own country. Uh, NATO is not present on the ground in northern Syria, but we strongly believe that we need a political solution. We support the UN efforts for a yeah. political solution. And then we uh, welcome the fact that Turkey and US present in, in northern Syria uh, talk together and try to coordinate their efforts there. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg there joining us on day three of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.